you're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Lisa Durant brought us another great message titled, Convinced. Let's check it out. Can we uh, have a little love for that Easter Feaster video? Because Luke and the VR and all of that. Um, I'm lobbying for an Easter Feaster video outtakes edition um, because there was a lot that happened that nobody saw. Um, anyway, Easter Feaster is going to be great. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about spring. Um, doesn't look like that's happening right now, but it's coming, right? It's coming. Um, welcome to Word of Life. If you're here for the first time, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we hope that you feel at home here. If this is your second or your third time, we really hope that you feel welcome and cared for. Um, if you want to hang out with us after church, there's coffee in the lobby and a great place to sit and just meet somebody. We'd love to have you stay. And um, for those of you who are joining us online this morning, please know there's a group of uh, chat hosts who are available to talk to you, pray with you. Um, they're there for you. So welcome this morning. Um, so for the past two weeks, Pastor Tom has been speaking on the idea of generation restoration. And um, he went to see the movie Jesus Revolution. My husband and I went to see it. I, I think probably a, a bunch of you went to see it, and it sparked something inside of us. Um, those of you who were able to see it, it was impactful. Um, it was thought-provoking. It was even a little challenging. Um, some of the things that Pastor Tom's been talking about um, and what the Lord's been laying on his heart are things like the severity of the problem problems facing this generation, the urgency of the church's mission, the need for a different way, um, hope in repentance. And so I'm not necessarily speaking within that series of generation restoration, but I do think that this mission is in step um, with the idea that we, all of us, are part of a generation that is facing problems that are of a severity that generations before us may not have been acquainted with. Um, those of you who have kids, those of you who have teenagers, young, those of you who are young adults, um, we know that there are things facing these generations and things facing um, our generation and the generations above us that are a little different. Um, for example, recently there was a bank crisis in California that's been on the news. Anybody following that? I don't follow the news just as a disclaimer. Um, as a practice, I don't follow the news. I let my dad and my husband tell me everything I need to know at dinner about what's happened on the news. Um, but I did, this came on my radar, and so I looked into it a little bit. So this is Silicon Valley Bank, and this bank has been around for four decades, and it's established in eight other countries, and it's collapsed. Um, and so because confidence in the bank began to drop, there was a rush on the bank and people began to yank their funds out as soon as they heard that there was maybe a little ripple of a problem. And then what's happened from there is there's been a question about the stability of financial institutions overall and um, people are really concerned if they have large assets in financial institutions. And that's a real fear, right? That is, that is a real fear. Um, so what I did, something that I really want to encourage you with, really encouraging to me, is I went and looked up the greatest fears of Americans. If you want to be encouraged, that's something to Google. Um, so there actually is a study, uh, the Chapman, Chapman University Survey of American Fears. They do this every year. Um, and the, the data from 2022 lists the top 10 fears of Americans. I won't read them all. I'm going to read you the basic topics that they center on. Um, corrupt government officials, 
harm to a loved one, war, environmental concerns, and economic concerns. So then, to make even more encouraging of a statement, I looked up Gallup's data, and that shows a consistently declining trend in confidence in organizations and institutions. So. Um, this is also something that's very real. They, they're concerned about things like church and organized religion. Can we trust them? The military, the Supreme Court, public schools, the news media, elected officials, and the list goes on. People in organizations that were once held in high esteem are now not trusted because people have a variety of reasons where they've seen that there's uh, lack of trust. Now, I'm not here to advocate or discount either one. Uh, I don't want to advocate for trusting organizations and institutions, and I also don't want to discount that. I don't want to advocate to tell you that these, fe these fears can't be uh, real and concerning because I find myself in these studies and these polls. I find myself seeing things that I'm concerned about and that I'm worried about. Um, as a whole, we're seeing society become more fragile and we're seeing things change that we used to think were unshakable and unchangeable. A few weeks ago, I was in staff meeting, and I know um, we've talked about staff meeting once in a while um, in all church meeting or all team meeting, and I've talked about it with my team. But our staff meetings on Tuesday mornings typically, and we meet over at Elizabeth Street, and it's a time of prayer and worship. When we set aside that hour on Tuesday mornings that as a church staff, we're going to spend time worshiping and we're going to spend time in prayer. And it's a, it's a juxtaposition of a corporate worship and prayer time and a private time for me. Um, and so I have these moments with God once in a while um, that are very private. But one of the moments that I had a few weeks ago is about to become public um, because I want to speak about a scripture that God dropped in my heart in the middle of staff meeting, and I heard it over and over and over to the point where I actually took out my phone and wrote a note and thought, this is what I'm going to preach on the next time I preach. Um, so I'm going to be initially um, in the book of Romans, and then I'm going to step out of that and I'm going to tell you a story because I'm a kid's pastor. That's what we do. Um, and we're going to talk about some things that go along with the idea of fear and what we can do when we're feeling afraid. So Romans 8, 38 through 39, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is a well-known, well-loved scripture. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our wor worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No powers in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I just want to get it right. Amen. Right? I just want to get it out of the way that I didn't intentionally plan to preach on uh, the, the book of the Bible that is the crux of the gospel message. Right? That wasn't my original plan. Um, so I feel a little intimidated, but here we are. We're doing it. Um, and so Paul is writing this book, and he's writing it to a church that's in a unique situation. This church in Rome um, has a group of Jewish believers, and it also has a group of Gentile believers, and they found themselves 
themselves together um, in a situation where the church had just faced persecution and they were about to face really deep and difficult persecution. Um, Claudius had expelled all of the Jews out of Rome um, probably about a decade to five years before this was written, and they had just returned. And what was about to happen was a concerted torture, basically, of the church by the Roman government. Um, And so Paul is about to visit them, and before he gets there, he writes this book. Um, These people definitely understood human suffering and fear. Uh, They worried about their loved ones. They didn't trust their government. They didn't trust institution. They had financial concerns. They were afraid of war and military, military strife. So the concerns that we face today are parallel to some of the things that they were dealing with. And so Paul sends this letter, which is essentially a manifesto of the good news of Jesus Christ that many of you are, are familiar with. And if you haven't read the book of Romans, take some time and read it. Um, it will challenge you and encourage you. Um, and during this book, he talks about the law, and he talks about grace, and he talks about sacrifice, and he talks about the cross, and he talks about how the Word takes care through Jesus Christ of all of those things, and he points these people to fully trusting in Christ in a way that would have made sense to the Jewish people that were familiar with the law and the new Gentile believers who were just understanding. And then he starts talking about suffering. He talks about the common human experience of suffering. And while I can't say that the collapse of a bank is the same as being tortured and martyred, there is an understanding, of course, that the word applies to all common human experiences because the word never changes and the word is unshakable and the word is always true. Amen, right. Romans 8 And in particular, this passage, it gives us this laser-sharp view of what sustains us and gives us something to drill down to. Paul uses this strong language in verse 38. He says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. He says, I am convinced. Now, some versions, like the version that I learned as a little girl may say persuaded. Um, The original language is, it it speaks of being convinced, uh, trusting, having confidence in. So convinced definitely works here. And in essence, it's the idea of being convinced of something that we've ever heard, that we've read, that we've experienced, and now we've applied to our lives to the point where we won't be unconvinced. We believe it, okay? It's a story that we've heard, experienced, or read, and now we've told that story to ourselves. So Paul is saying, I'm steadfast. I won't be persuaded that anything about God's love will change. And while we can choose to reject it, nothing can ever separate us from it outside of that. So that in and of itself could be the end of the message. I could say we're good. We can go home. That could be it. Um, we we want to we just remember that God loves us. But I want to talk about the idea of being convinced, the idea of being tethered, the idea of being grounded in something, and the substitutes for God's love that can get us off course. And I want to do it by telling you a story. 
Um, and this is not a story I'm going to read out of a children's book. It's not Christmas Eve. I'm really sorry, creative arts team. I know when we were rehearsing that, they all gathered around Pastor Lisa as I read a story. Fun times. Um, so Pastor Tom referenced um, one of my favorite parables two weeks ago, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus often told parables. He told stories so that people would understand what he was trying to say, and he adopted those stories to their context and to their culture so that they would make sense. So I want to look closely at the story, and I will want to look at all the players, what drove them, and what beliefs they held firmly. And if you'll stay with me. Um, I hope that you'll be challenged, and I hope you'll be encouraged this morning. So I'm in Luke 15. If you want to turn there, you don't have to, um, because I'm going to be in and out of the scripture of that. Um, And I have to mention, because I think I am contractually obligated to, um, that when I shared this idea with my husband, his response to me was, that dog will hunt. So if you know Harry Durant, that makes sense to you. Um, Tomorrow is the 36th, honey, anniversary of our first date. Just putting it out there. All right. He was like something and a half years. I don't know. He didn't know. That's okay. So here we go. Luke chapter 15. I'm I'm starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now the father loved both of his sons. Traditionally, the inheritance would have been reserved for the moment that the father died. And traditionally, a child wouldn't ask for this inheritance, but the younger son was greedy and he was selfish. He thought he was owed something, something that he didn't earn. He believed that he would be better off on his own with his own money in control of his own destiny. And beyond that, in that time and place, if it's not bad enough that the son was greedy and selfish, that was basically like saying, I wish you were dead. And he was removing himself from his obligation, his cultural obligation to care for his father in his old age. He was only thinking of himself. His desire to be in charge of what he thought he could manage better than the father won out. The father was hurt. What could be better than to live in my house, my house that's full of love, and I give you everything that you need. I provided for you. And yet, I won't stand in your way, son. You can make your own choices. So the son committed to disowning his family, abandoning the father that loved him and the responsibilities that went with it, and he left. He was convinced that his own abilities would carry him further than relying on his father's love. The story he told himself was that things must be better out there on his own. Stepping back into scripture, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. It was fun while it lasted, he thought. 
I really enjoyed my freedom. I had friends. I had incredible feasts. I had fine clothes. Everybody knew who I was. I didn't have a life like that in my father's house. It was really unbelievable. I didn't see that crisis coming. I didn't know the food would run out so quickly. I had no idea that my money wouldn't last. And now everyone needs a job. Everyone is hungry. And I have nothing. Imagine what people at home would say about him at this point. Not only had he recklessly misused his father's inheritance, but now he was working where no respectable Jewish boy would be. He had sunk to the very depths of filth. It was humiliating and it was degrading, and he was convinced that things could not possibly turn around for him. I can only imagine how fearful he felt as he looked at his future. Stepping back into scripture, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Bruce Barton says, when reality finally hit him, the son finally came to his senses. Sitting among pigs that were better fed than he was, he reflected on life back home. He realized that at home, even the hired men have enough food to spare with no money, no dignity, and so he thought, no claim to sonship in his father's household. He decided to go home to his father, confess his sin, and ask to be taken on as a hired man. At least there, he would not go hungry. Realizing that what he was convinced of before, his ability to control his own destiny, his ability to take on the world, realizing that wasn't true, the son's thought shifted to a new reality. I've given up my rights as my father's son. I've made myself completely unclean and undignified. I can't go back into my father's house, but I could work as a servant. I could be let go at any time. I wouldn't have a stable job, but at least for now, I can get by. Now, there had to be another fear here, right? Another element of fear, fear of rejection, Fear of retaliation and punishment, which would have been appropriate in the context of culture because he had dishonored his father and he had broken a commandment. There could have been fear that this wouldn't have worked, but he had to try something. So now he's convinced that he wouldn't be welcomed back to, as a son, but he was so hungry and so desperate for food that he headed back to his father's house to settle for something. It wasn't the best, but it wasn't the worst. Stepping back into scripture, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. <clears throat> but the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Excuse me. 
The son had no idea that this would happen. He thought he would get to his father's house, <clears throat> excuse me, and his father would reject him. He was convinced, <coughs> excuse me, he was convinced that there was no way that his father could possibly love him. He had humiliated himself and degraded himself to a point where he had no right to make a claim on his sonship. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Not only had his father lowered himself to run to him, he had hugged him and protected him from the punishment that he so deeply deserved. He had protected him from those who would take him out and punish him just as he deserved for breaking the law. So how could this be happening that his father was willing to do this? I want to step out of the story again for a minute. So I opened with a different scripture, a completely different passage. And I talked about crises and difficulties and how our generation is facing things that are increasingly concerning and difficult. Why are we talking about this story in Luke? Paul said that he was convinced, he trusted, he had confidence in the love of God and the inability of anything to separate us from it. Yet we see a young man who was convinced that the love of his father was not enough. He was convinced that he could do the best for himself. He was convinced that if he went out, he would have a better life. And then when hard times came, when bankruptcy and starvation came, he was still convinced that his father's love wasn't enough. He truly believed that he would have to take the place of a servant. It would be something, but it would get him out of his de desperate situation. Now we all do this. When we find ourselves facing something that terrifies us, that scares us, that can hurt us, we tell ourselves a story. Once this season is over, after I retire, when I get that promotion and that raise, <clears throat> at least I have my health. My relationships are healthy. I'm smart and I'm talented. Once this person is elected, I'm good with money. Well, at least it's not this. We all have something that we drill down to. When we hear of difficulties or when we see them coming for us or when we see someone else experiencing difficulties, we think, I can figure this out. I'm in control. I can control what's happening to me. And we tell ourselves the story that we are able to fix it. Those scary things, the things I talked about in the beginning, the things that scare Americans, those are very real. They're as real as a famine and a job feeding pigs. They're as real as a persecuted church and a government making martyrs. So we try to look for ways to get out of situations to make things better, and we tell ourselves the story 
that we are still the most powerful force in our own lives. Now, there's, there's a third person in the story. He was someone who was also convinced of some, something. He's the oldest son. And when he heard that his little brother had come back, and not only had his father welcomed him into the house, but he was celebrating him. He didn't respond with joy. He didn't respond with celebration. He responded with anger and jealousy. Father, I have done so much around here. I have always obeyed you. I have never spoken a disrespectful word to you or about you. I have been so good. I've helped you build all of this. Surely my goodness is better than his rebellion. And yet you're throwing him a party. The older son had told himself a story. He was convinced of something. He was convinced that his father loved him because of his goodness and because of his obedience. He also had something to fear. He feared the loss of his standing with his father. He had a standing as the good son, he thought. And his world was rocked when he realized that his father's love did not depend on his behavior. His father simply loved his children. So we live in a really crazy, messed up world, right? Um, it gets, seems like it gets more messed up and crazier as the days go by. It's been crazy and messed up since sin showed up in a perfect garden and we were separated from God because of that sin. In fact, that sin is the only thing that separates us from God. And for years, there was a law. There was a law that involved punishment and sacrifice. And then Jesus came. And he came to bring a law where he took on punishment and he took on sacrifice. So the people that were listening to him at that moment would have understood about the laws that the, older son, the younger son had broken and why the older son was hanging on to his own goodness and his own ability to keep the law the right way. So this parable actually turned the law on its head and began to shine a light on the fact that they were convinced that their goodness would keep them where they needed to be. Paul's convictions, as he wrote the book of Romans, centered on his knowledge of the law and his experience with grace and the love of God. The old covenant, covenant that was one that required punishment and sacrifice for those who broke it, had been replaced with a new covenant where Jesus took the punishment and made the sacrifice for all of us who are broken. Paul was so passionate about the reliability of God's love that he wrote this passage. It's brilliant and it's beautiful. And he lists things that bring fear to our hearts, all of us. Trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger, destitution, danger, threat of death, and the very powers of hell. And he boldly stated that nothing measures up to the power of the love of God, not even the force of our attempts to fix our own situations. 
There's no amount of money. There's no government or elected official. There's no ability or talent. There's no earthly relationship. Nothing in and of our own goodness that can hold a candle to the power of the love of God. So today, I just have one question for you. I don't have three points. I just have a question. What story are you telling yourself? Like I said, we live in a messy world. It's a world between a perfect creation and a perfect heaven. And in between is a mess made by sin. Bad things happen. And bad things will happen. We can be separated from our health. We can be separated from our loved ones, our money, our careers. All sorts of things can come between us and the things that we think are important. And we can tell ourselves the story that we can be good enough to avoid bad things, that our obedience and our goodness will be enough, that our righteousness will keep us from anything that scares us. But unfortunately, that story isn't true. We can tell ourselves the story that we have to settle for second best because it's the best that we can do. It's the best we can manage for ourselves because we've messed up a lot. So we have to take the place of a servant, not a stable position, but something that'll get us by for now until the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. But that story isn't true either. We may even tell ourselves that being away from the Father for so long makes it impossible to be near Him. We've chosen our own path and our own destiny, and we've been control of that, in control of that. Maybe it's too hard to come to Him, or maybe He won't welcome us. I want to give you a different story to tell yourselves. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is a God who loves you so much that absolutely nothing can separate you from him. No matter what happens or what scary things you see on the horizon, you can have confidence today because that love is unshakable and immovable. Because of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us, each and every one of us, we can place our trust in something that only depends on us accepting that love. Could scary things still happen? Yeah, they can, and they will. We're not promised anything on this earth, but we are promised everything in the love of the Father. And today, that loving Father is waiting He's ready to run to you when you decide to come home. 
No matter what you've been convinced of before, let today be the day that you let go of whatever story you've told yourself. Let today be the day that you are truly convinced that nothing can separate you from his love. Let today be the day that your first thought, your first thought when trouble's on the horizon, when the bad phone call comes, when you get that text, when you have that strange interaction, let today be the day that your first thought isn't of your own ability, your first thought isn't of your bank account, your first thought isn't of the relationships you can leverage, but your first thought is of the love of God for you that never, ever, ever changes. Even though the prodigal son chose to separate himself from it, the father never stopped loving him. And when he returned home, the son became convinced because he experienced that love. You see, the stories we tell ourselves come from something we've heard, something we've read, something we've experienced. And then we tell ourselves that story. Let today be the day that that's the story you tell yourself. Let today be the day that you're convinced. And we're gonna go back into a time of worship. So now is a perfect time to think about what you're truly convinced of. What do you drill down to when the hard times are on the horizon? What's your first thought? What's the thing that you want to go to? If it is anything less than the love of God, whether it's a pigsty, or servants' quarters, whether it's your financial stability, your relationships, or even your own goodness, if it's anything less than the full truth of the love of God, please know that there's a different story you can tell yourself today. So together, guys, let's worship the God who loves us. Let's worship together. <laughs> 